Hello, my name is Lee Shellnut, and I'm the pastor of the Huntersville Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. That's a mouthful, so we affectionately know of ourselves as HARP. We at HARP welcome you to the podcast of our preaching and teaching ministry. We're grateful that you've joined us. If you're encouraged by what you hear, we'd love to have you subscribe. We believe in the power of God's Word, and we love sharing the glorious good news of the Lord Jesus Christ as we preach and teach through the pages of Holy Scripture. So join us now as we open up God's Word. This is the invitation. may be seated. We come now to our reading of God's Word. Some of you are looking at that, and you're going, that's 48 verses. And so I want you to know, yes, yes it is, 48 verses. We have a lot to cover. And if you figure, 48 verses, about three minutes a verse, we've got about 144 minutes to go between now and the end of the... I'm kidding. Just turn with me, we will make our way through the reading and then through the sermon. 2 Samuel chapter 20. Now, there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David. And we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse, every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. And David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. Then the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together to to me within three days and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time and that had been appointed him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to a fortified cities and escape from us. And there went out after him Joab's men and the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men. They went out from the Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were at the great stone that is Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now, Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword and its sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And, he took jo- uh, and Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab, Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow. And he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. One of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, 
Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway, and anyone who came by seeing him stopped. And when the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. When he was taken out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of beth and all the Bichrites assem- uh, assembled and followed him in. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of beth They cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak to you. And he came near her, and the woman said, Are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, Listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I am listening. Then she said, They used to say in former times, Let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled a matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab answered, Far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim, called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give up him alone, and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown over to you, uh, over the wall. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet. And they dispersed from the city, every man to his home. And Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel. And Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, in command of the Cherethites and Pelethites. And Adoram was in charge of the forced labor. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder. And Shiva was the secretary. And Zadok and Abiathar were priests. And Ira the Jairite was also David's priest. Now, there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put away or put any man to death in Israel. And he said, What do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, 
the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel? Let seven of his sons be given to us that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Meholathite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of the harvest, at the beginning of the barley harvest. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until the rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told uh, what Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of beth Shan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day, of the, Phil- on the, day the Philistines uh, killed Saul on Gilboa. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan. And they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. And they, were be- and they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin and Zelah in the tomb of Kish his father. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel. And David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary. And Ishbi Benab, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze, and who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, You shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. After this, there was war again with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibekai, the Hushethite, struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants. And there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. And Elhanan, the son of Jair Oregim, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was war again at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, twenty-four in number. And he also descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his 
servants. The word of God for the people of God. What are you afraid of? Perhaps, maybe even some of you in the balcony, perhaps it's heights. You will not go near that edge. You will not look over that ledge because if you do, your stomach will turn and you will shake. Perhaps they're not here so I can embarrass them. You're like my daughters. It's spiders. And even though a spider's only this big and you can step on it, a spider will cause you, a grown man, to squeal. Perhaps, perhaps it's flying. Perhaps it's speaking in public. Something, something likely makes you afraid. Something makes you tremble. Sometimes it's just embarrassment. You don't want people to know who you are, what what you've done, you fear that more than anything. If only your sins were placarded on your forehead like, like a, a, a rolling scroll, like a marquee. That's your fear. But the reality as we look at these two chapters is that all of those pale in comparison to what ought to be our fear. What is the thing that ought, well, that ought to set you at terror? What is, what is the thing that ought to make your knees knock and your insides turn? It's a small word. It's, it's a three-letter word. It's a word that's plagued us ever since Genesis chapter 3. Sin. Sin ought to cause you to stop in your tracks, to shake, to, to make you want to turn away from, from it, to never look upon it, to never come close to it. Here in chapter 20 and 21 of, of 2 Samuel, the thing that we should fear most plays out before our eyes. These are, these are chapters that are filled with all manner of sin, with all sorts of pictures of sin, and even the type of sin. You say type, but we've always had sin and substance. Yes, yes, but these things were written as an example for us and so that we may know how to deal with them. It is filled with sin. And as we take a look at these chapters and we see them filled with sin, they ought to give us a right understanding, a right look at sin that we, that we will not well, that we will not pursue it, that we will not fall into it, that we may at every turn turn away from it, that we might pursue the Lord and not sin. As you look at these chapters, they're grim. There's a lot of death. There's a lot of war. There's a lot of bloodshed. There's even a beheading of a man and a stabbing of a man right, in, right into, with a weak hand, mind you, the left hand of that man. He was so accustomed to shedding blood. There's a lot of sin that's on the outward 
men who rise up and call others to themselves. There's a lot of bubbling under. There's a lot of sin that's been forgotten, but the Lord never forgets. And so this chapter is bleak. Chapter 20 and 21 are bleak because they deal, they deal with reality. They deal with the way things are, not the way things should be. And so as we talk about this chapters, these chapters, we're going to talk about sin. We're going to talk about it honestly. We're going to talk about it in the way that we ought to think about it. And so this chapter, though it's 48 verses, we're going to have to leave off some things. We're not really going to hit the 144-minute mark, but, but we are going to have to deal with things. And so we'll leave some off, we'll sweep some in, and others, well, we may forget. But we're going to deal with sin. So what are we going to learn or see about sin from these two chapters? Well, three things. We're going to see sin's reach, sin's devastation, and sin's answer. Sin's reach, sin's devastation, sin's answer. What's the reach of sin? You look at chapter 20, you look at chapter 21... And as you look at them, you need to set before you this this reality. That sin's reach is so pervasive that one of the scariest things about sin is that it's never just me. My sin is never... Well, it's never only about me. It never only affects just me. Don't you see it? Don't you see it here? Here at the tail end of chapter 19 where something that ought to be rejoicing, it turns ugly. Judah and Israel have nasty words for each other. And now at the onset of chapter 20, well, a worthless man, a a man of Belial, a wicked man stands up and blatantly sets before us a picture of sin and the division that it causes, doesn't he? And immediately, immediately you see sin's reach that there is always collateral damage. It always reaches out and pulls in. It always doesn't just leave you affected, it affects others. No matter if you think it's done in the privacy of a room, no one else knows. And yet it's always pulling in. And so I wonder, as you look at these chapters, as you understand that sin is never just me, it always involves collateral damage, do you see it there with Sheba? Sheba stands up, doesn't he? These men have have had hard words and he doesn't like it. It offends him. And so he says, away, away from this this house of Jesse. Everyone gather to me. Go to your tents, O Israel. And he actively involves Israel. He, He calls them to join him, to accept his rebellion. And so they say, they say, okay, we too don't like the words of Judah. We're going to, we're going to take off. 
And it's already affected a whole nation. Ten tribes and two tribes. Sin's reach. Well, you can't get away from it. You you can't get away from it. Here, Sheba. Sheba does something that is not even private. It it doesn't affect only him. but, But there are times that sin is thought of as private. Or at least a little more quiet. Only involving a few. That's verse 3. That strange little verse right in the middle of David's return. David comes to his house in Jerusalem and there are ten concubines who had been left to to look over the house. And you know what's happened. Absalom's sin is there. Absalom came in and and these ten, they were defiled. But, But it's not just Absalom's sin that's at play here. No, this is something that goes further back. You remember... You remember there was a woman bathing on her rooftop? And there was a king who should have been at war. He was, he was there at his house and he looks out and he, he brings in this woman and she was married and his sin is then, well, it's compounded. He turns not just adultery but to murder. And there is a prophet who comes to him and he says, Thou art the man and... Well, what does he say? The sword will never depart from your house. And yet there will be one that rises up from within your house. And he will defile your house by laying with your wives. Pervasive. Father and son. Sin reaches far. Sin. Sin has its tentacles everywhere. Sin is, well... It's with us all. It's the disease that you were born with. The disease that you were conceived in. The disease that will be with you. And so sin reaches. Sin never affects only me. And then you get another picture of sin. There is Joab. He's walking. His sword is upon his thigh. It is obvious. And it drops to the ground. And he picks it up with his left hand. Left hand wasn't thought threatening. And he even grabs. He even grabs Amasa with the hand of war. And he strikes him dead. And yes, that's part of his sin. But that's not all of his sin. Joab's a picture of that really private sin. We've heard not a word from Joab ever since he's been demoted. And now here he is. He's meeting up, following the king's commands. But within, that sin's been bubbling. That anger's been churning. That seething rage in this old butcher of a man, this hardened sinner, is there. And sin doesn't affect only me. Here in a moment where it looks as if nothing's going to happen, something happens and he snaps and there it is. That sword's run right through Amasa. Not even needing a second glance. Not even, he's skilled at the art of killing. And down goes Amasa. And sin never affects 
only me. He kills him. Regardless of the king's command, you see that Joab's seething anger, his, his sin is never only contained within himself. You will see that in your own life. There are times when, when you, are, you are seething, bubbling under with sin, some sort of sin, and at the least expected moment, here it comes. You thought you were done with it. You thought, you thought you really had a handle on it. You thought, okay, the king has said this, I'm not going to do this, and spills over, doesn't it? You're riding in the car and someone else cuts you off. Your child asks a question at the same time. And your child is, well, they're, they're not wicked and, and they're not deserving of the answer that you give because someone else sinned. You see, your sin never affects only you. They're not deserving of that response. And so here's Joab. Yes, Amasa's not sinless. He raised a rebellion against David. He was a part of it. But he's been put in place by the authority of the king. And now back to Sheba. Sheba's sin has raised up others. They retreat into Abel. And Sheba's sin, well, it affects more than him, doesn't it? They are raising up the mechanisms of war against Abel. And Abel wasn't even there. The people of Abel were in Abel doing their thing. And yet here, the mechanisms of war, they have a siege built up. They are going to kill everyone in that town. And Sheba's sin is not just affecting only him. And then you get to chapter 21. You get to chapter 21 because after all that's said and done, you're, you're hopeful, aren't you? You're like, whoo, the, the Lord must not be angry anymore. It goes to this random list of commanders. Joab's made the commander of the army again, not by the king's proclamation, but by the slaughter of Amasa. And so you think when you get to chapter 21, everything's going to go swimmingly. And a long forgotten sin, forgotten of men, remembered of the Lord. And there was a famine in the land, year after year for three years, and the people of Israel are dying. Because Saul murdered the Gibeonites. He thought he was doing it for the Lord, and he slayed them, breaking his covenant promise. The covenant promise of the people of Israel. Your sin never affects only you. You don't know down the line where your, where your sin's effects might pop up. Sin's reach is astonishingly... It's everywhere. Sin affects the highest in command... To those who weren't even there when it happened. These children of Israel weren't there necessarily when Saul slay the Gibeonites. That was years ago. And so you see sins reach. You see, you see no matter what the world tells you. No matter what your own inward heart 
tells you no matter what you may hear from others, your sin is never just you. It's never just you and maybe a couple of others. It's never just you and that computer screen. It's never just you and, well, that anger that you have, that you've been holding on to at your brother or sister in the Lord, and you really don't want to confront them, and so you've compounded your sin, just like David. You will go about and you will be Joab. You say, I've never stabbed someone in my life. And if you have, don't tell me now. But you say, I've never stabbed someone in my life. Have you cut them with the tongue? The murderous tongue that that has the poison of asps under it. The cheapest form of murder available to you is to take it to someone else instead of going to that person to see if it can't be healed together through the gospel, through the promises and saying, look, we are brother and sister, let's work this out. Don't believe the lie. I want you to see how hideous and heinous and nasty and ugly sin is. It has involved us all. You've been sucked into the black hole. You have it on board already. And it, it's there. Don't believe the lies of your heart that everything you're doing is okay and pure. Right? See sin's reach. Because it's very apparent from these chapters, sin's devastation, isn't it? From verse 1 of chapter 20 to the end of chapter 20. From verse 1 of chapter 21 to the end of chapter 21, sin is devastating. Sin wreaks havoc. How so? Well, in a lot more ways than I'm going to give you, but we had to read 48 verses. and Well, most of you have something in the crock pot and you're hungry. And so we're going to deal with a few parts of it. We're going to talk about it in three things. Sin's devastation. What do you see first about sin? It divides. You get it in verse 1, don't you? It divides a nation. You get it in verse 3, don't you? It divides a household. That's what sin does. It divides. It has always come in bringing division. And sin, it divides. Well, since day one, you go all the way back to Genesis 3. There they eat of the fruit and there you see division beginning, don't you? The Lord comes in mercy, but they don't know it. The Lord comes in mercy, but now their hearts have been corrupted. They've been twisted. They've been turned against the one who is the best there is, the chief good. And now they see him as an enemy. The one whom they've walked with in the cool of the day and received communion and love and beautiful blessings that they could have all of the earth. Everything was theirs except this one tree. And now... They're divided from him. They hear his footsteps and what happens? They dive into the bushes and they're like, quick, sew together these leaves. And they're divided from God. 
And the Lord begins to question, doesn't he? And they're divided from each other. The woman that you gave me. And they're divided even in themselves, as Francis Schaeffer would point out. So that they lie to themselves. They lie to their own hearts and they put the blame as something out there. When really, you know the scripture well enough, don't you? Sin doesn't come from out there. Sin isn't a matter of, of, well, I've been to the market and and I haven't washed my hands and I'm going to eat this food and now sin may enter my body. No. Jesus says, eat with dirty hands. Kids, if your parents tell you to wash your hands, wash your hands. But Jesus says, eat with dirty hands. That's not what defiles you. It's already in there. It's just going to spill over. And your heart, your heart will lie to you and tell you it's not so bad and you'll be divided from your own self if possible. Sin causes division. And we are supposed to be united, aren't we? We're supposed to be united with our Savior, with our Lord, with the one who made us, the one who gloriously sets out redemption. And yet sin would divide us even now if it could. Now, it might bring on his fatherly displeasure, but it would if it could run its course because because it would divide you from him if it weren't for him. He's keeping you. It would divide you from each other. That sin that you hold dear, husband, that sin that you hold dear, wife, that you will not let go of, whether it's anger, whether it's addiction to lust, It will divide you. It will make you believe lies about your partner that you ought not to believe. And then you begin to question each other and then you call to sides and arms and there is war in the house. Oh, it's devastating. Jesus said what God hath joined. Let not man put asunder. And by your sin, if you're not careful, if you're not running to Him, if you're not doing it away, you will put asunder. Sin divides. It is obvious in this text. They are divided in verse 1. They call out to Sheba and he says, come on to me and the nation's divided. And then David comes back in and he's divided from his wives because of the sin of his son. And well... Joab's divided from Amasa by his sword. And then you get a call for sides again, don't you? Everyone who's for David and Joab, follow me. And so sin causes division because we too often think of sin as something we do, something out there, instead of who we are. Instead of what's affected us from the very moment of conception, sin divides. Sin divides. It's deceptive. But sin always comes for its due. Sin sin is a terrible hire. 
One Puritan put it this way, he is a great fool who drinks an ocean of wrath for a drop of pleasure. Sin hires you on and it will come for its due. Let me put it another way to make it more stark. The wages of sin is death. Let me say it the way the Lord said it, even at the very outset, so that you would know. On the day in which you eat of it, dying thou shalt die. Oh, sin wreaks devastation, doesn't it? Sin sin divides us from each other, from ourselves, and from God. And sin is always trying to collect its wages. Death are its wages. You see it all through 2 Samuel, don't you? David sins. And the Lord says to him, the sword will never depart from your house. You will lose fourfold. It will die. And he loses, doesn't he? The child that's born. He loses Absalom. He loses Michael. He loses loses children. Sin comes for its dues. And you say, well, I'm okay right now. Those wages are coming due. They may be due tomorrow. You may live a long life before they're collected. Right? But sin's constantly calling for its due. It's like, it's like a bill collector. Right? We recently changed our numbers when we moved here. Thankfully, it doesn't happen to me. But twice now, when Jen's changed her numbers, moved to Texas, changes her number, moves back to the Carolinas, changes her number, and apparently whoever had her number before, well, they dodged a lot of bill collectors. Relentless calls she gets. We'll sit at the dinner table. Three or four calls from a number she doesn't even know. And sure enough, hi, we're trying to reach you, not necessarily about an extended warranty, but about some bills that you owe. Why? Because that which wants its wages is relentless. It thrives on those wages. Death or sin thrives upon death. And so it's coming. You can rest assured that sin has only one wage, one one earning, and it's not your satisfaction and pleasure in it. It's your death. It's your death. It's your death. And so why is sin so devastating? Well, it's because of its duration. It's because of its duration. What do I mean? Well, you get it all throughout this chapter. And you might think you're going to get a moment's peace, don't you? Right after that that glorious word in verse 14. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. And you go. Oh, the carnage of sin is over. This is wonderful. And verse 15 starts. And there was war. And then you read a little further down. And there was war. And there was war. And there was war. When does sin come on board? 
In sin, my mother conceived me. When, when are you finally free of that sin? When you close your eyes in death or the Lord returns. Why is sin so devastating? Because it's there from the very moment of conception to the very, very moment of your death. It is there. It is either reigning in you or you must war against it just as you get this picture. Remember I said there is a, a type of sin in this passage and it's that war with the Philistines. David is the, is the king. He's the commander of the Lord's army. He is the one who is going out to war on behalf of God's people and what it looks like is God's church battling sin at every point and there will never be an end to it so here's the question when can you lay down your sword in the fight against sin never a soldier in the midst of a firefight, bullets blazing, who says, that's it. I can't take anymore. I have no part of this. I'm done. I've, I've done my time. I've done my service. And he stands up and he begins to walk down what happens to him. He becomes a statistic, doesn't he? When can you lay down your sword in the battle against sin? Never. When it's taken from your hand by your Lord and He says, enter into my rest. You see, sin's duration is your whole life. And it's the life of this entire world until Christ comes in the great undoing. Oh, it's already begun. And that's the answer for it. The great undoing has already begun. When Christ has come, well, there's sin's answer. But right now, Right now, until He comes again, what's happening? We groan. You, you hear of another unjust death, and you groan. You, you hear of the outworkings of some tragedy, some famine in another land, and your soul groans, and, and you hear... You hear of, well, you hear of a murder. You hear of child trafficking. You hear of abortion. You hear, you hear, you hear. And I hope you're not so callous that you've stopped groaning. Because that groaning is pointing you to someone who will come and undo it all. And that groaning will turn from cries and sorrow to rejoicing. You understand from what we read at the end of chapter 21 that David isn't the answer. David's given for you to know that he's not your hope. David, the man after God's own heart, is not... The hope of Israel. He goes to battle and what happens? He wearies. He can't even pick up his sword and his men must defend him. The man who had lopped off the head of Goliath. 
was about to have his head lopped off by a descendant of Goliath, reminds you a little bit of what Jesus says. A man sweeps his house. Sin is put out. Those evil spirits go. The house is clean. And they come back. Now here they come back. And there is war. And there is war. And there is war. And David the king is not the answer. The man after God's own heart Well, if he dies, the lamp in Israel goes out, they say. So what's the answer? Well, it's the man who is God's own heart. It's the man who is the picture of the grace of God. The one who would come, who came willingly in order that he would not tire in the battle against sin. When all others who said, don't worry about it, I He will help you. I will be with you. Though all others flee, Jesus, I will stay. And they ran scared. Jesus takes up the battle. And he must do it alone. Because he alone is the God-man who can put an end to sin. And put an end to that battle that is never ceasing. Who will one day come back. And so there he is. There he is in Calvary and there is darkness. The lamp is out it seems. And he's put to death and a light begins to burn. And three days later, it is a glorious light that cannot be contained. The tomb is is empty. The stone is rolled away and there is glory and there is splendor. And Christ is raised because he is victorious over sin. So here's the answer. It's not David who tires. It's in Christ who has been raised, who did not tire, who never sinned, who was not spoiled by sin. Sin affected him only outwardly because, well, you sinned. And your sin is what put him on the cross, not his sin. And so he... He drinks all that cup of wrath that you might receive pleasure at His right hand forevermore. The cup of inheritance. Oh, sin. Sin is everywhere. Sin's devastating. But it will be undone If you come to Him, He will make you new so that those old stomping grounds will begin to be put to death. It does not mean that you will ever be done with the war, but it means that He will fight for you. It means that He who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. Your hands will weary. You will fall down. And it will seem as if sin is going to take your head off and He will step in. And He will fight for you. As your prophet. As your priest. And as your undefeated king. And so you turn to Him. In answer to sin. Let's go to him now in prayer.
Almighty God, give us a hatred and a holy fear of sin. Give us hearts that recoil at the very thought of sinning against our glorious God. Do not let us lie to ourselves that it won't affect anyone else. That it's just me. But Lord, let us see that against you and you only have we sinned. And do a work of grace in us to cleanse us, to put sin to death in us, and to give us hope. In Christ's name, amen.